Would somebody read 22 to 27? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Also the fat of an animal which dies, and the fat of an animal torn by beasts, may be put to any other use, but you must certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. You are not to eat any blood, either of bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person, shall be cut off from his people. Okay, we are reviewing some laws that we saw already yesterday in terms of what they were not supposed to eat. And what were they not supposed to eat? The fat or the blood? The fat because it represents what? The best. And the best doesn't belong to man to eat. The best belongs to the Lord. Absolutely. The blood was not to be eaten primarily because the blood symbolizes what? The blood. The life was given by God, belongs to God, and is not to be eaten by man. So he's basically summarizing those two prohibitions uh, in connection with uh, the sacrifices. Do you have comments and questions on these? Uh, we talked about them some yesterday, but do you have other things you want to say about these things through verse 27? 27? Through 27. I assume, but I don't know. Anybody know what Jews today eat? Or not? <laughs> no, they don't eat pork. They, they don't eat pork. That's just not And that also, uh, you know, goes back to our question, even though perhaps we should answer it, that this is referring to all animals. There would probably be some... Um, I don't know, some question mark about that. Um, there are some passages that might make you think uh, that they did eat uh, the fat of just ordinary animals. I'll throw out a couple here. Deuteronomy 32, verses 13 and 14. Moses' song, he made him ride on the high place of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of grapes, uh, you drank wine. It looks there like the people were led in the wilderness, and they actually did eat fat of non-sacrificial animals. i got a couple more passages in my notes. I haven't looked at them. Uh, that, Nehemiah 8 and verse 10, when the law was uh, read and they were mourning and weeping, God told them no to rejoice. And he says in 10, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, etc. So there, go eat of the fat. Uh, for whatever we want to make out of that. And then Psalm 63 and verse 5. Um, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. I don't know. Those are some passages that might give us some difficulty with the view that fat was not to be eaten of any animal. I think it's possible. I'm not sure about this, and you brought up some good points 
yesterday, but I think it's possible that we should take the prohibition of eating fat to be only associated with sacrificial animals. But I'm not sure about that. Bruce. This is an observation, but uh, the, the term fatted calf is used, which means just partake of the well-fed animal. Yes. And this is also a possibility. You know, eat of fat, that means eat of the well-produced Okay. Then maybe, maybe that's uh, more of an expression for just being a uh, healthy animal. Okay. Maybe so. Any other comments and questions through 27? <coughs> okay. Uh, 28 to 38. <coughs> The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as his sacrifice to the Lord. With his own hands he is to bring the offering made to the Lord by fire. He is to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar. The breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a con contribution the son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron, the priest, and his sons as their regular share from the Israelites. This is the portion of the offerings made to the Lord by fire that, we, that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. On the day they were anointed, the Lord commanded that the Israelites give this to them as their regular share for the generations to come. These, then, are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. On the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord in the desert of Sinai. Okay, we are dealing here with which offering? He's got fellowship offering, but what, what do we have in some of our translation? Peace, Peace offering. And uh, fellowship is not a bad term, though, to express that. I mean, just uh, Maybe most of us are more familiar with the NASB and it's rendering a peace offering. And uh, when they brought the peace offering to the Lord, what parts of the peace offering were eaten by the priest? That's it. The breast and the right thigh were the priests. What parts were burned up on the altar? Do you remember? All the fat. All the fat with the kidneys and the lobe of the liver. Yes. And obviously there was a part of that that was never eaten, although it wasn't burned on the altar, and that was what part? The blood. Um, so what about all the other parts, like the left thigh and whatever else there was besides the breast and the right thigh? Who got that? Exactly. That was the cooked meat that was shared in this meal that the worshiper would participate in that had to be eaten if it was a Thanksgiving peace offering. It had to be eaten when? That day. Or if it was a votive or free will peace offering, it had to be eaten either that day or the following day. But those, the rest of it, not the fat, the liver, kidneys, not the blood, and not the breast or the right thigh, all the rest of it belonged to the worshiper 
for his meal that day or that day and the next day. Comments and questions uh, through verse 36, this part dealing with the peace offering and what the uh, priest got out of that. He summarizes in 37 and 38, as he does from time to time. One of the things we're going to see is that quite a few section ends have a summary statement. And this is one of them. And in verse 37 and 38, this is the law of the blank, 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 talking about the different peace offering over different sacrifices, kind of summarizing the main topics. This is what the Lord had commanded. Let me suggest something uh, that we've already said, but I think it's so <coughs> obvious here, that when we are attentive to details, that goes together with powerful worship. Just sort of a lackadaisical, do it however you want to kind of an attitude, that doesn't give you the worship God wants. God's worship is very precise. He's given exact rules and regulations as to how this worship it's going to be what God wants. And uh, it's always going to be better when we worship God in that detailed, specific sort of a way. All right, anything that you want to say or ask about on chapter 7? Wave offering? Oh, yeah, good point. The wave offering, did you notice that? In like uh, 30, he shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. Um, I'm not positive, but the thing that I have understood is that it was sort of waved across the altar and like given to God, and then God gives it back, and the priests get it. So we've sort of presented it to God by kind of passing it across and then taking it back so we've sort of given it to God, and he's given it back. So we wave it. Now, does anybody who don't have uh, quite as many, uh, uh, you know, uh, middle-aged uh, individuals here who might know, although some of you guys do too, uh, but anybody know anything better than that, or anybody want to object to that? Do we have any grain offerings that were waved? Were there some sheaves that were waved? Maybe. Maybe so. I don't know. I don't think we've had it yet. We may have it later. I don't know. Maybe we did, and I just noticed it. So. <clears throat> okay. We may come across some more wave offerings. Uh, that's my understanding. It's a good question. I'm glad you pointed that out. Other comments and questions? Yes, Brittany. Where exactly was the point of, like, was it just giving it to God? I think that's the idea. By waving it across, they've <laughs> given it to God. They've offered it. And now God's sort of handing it back. It seemed like we had a discussion about this in one of the Saturday night studies one time. I don't remember if anybody was in that, and I don't remember what the result of that was, but I think we talked about it. Uh, but that, that's my idea about it, is that by, by doing that, we've really even given that part to God. It all belongs to God. But then he sort of let us bring it back and eat it ourselves. <clears throat> Other thoughts? Yeah, Ben. Well, I just want to make sure the timeline I'm getting in my head is right. They, they came to Sinai. On Sinai, God tells Moses you know, about the tabernacle and certain laws for the people on the basis of the priesthood. They make the tabernacle, put it up, 
Yes, that's my understanding. We're still on Mount Sinai, as they were first. Well, they were on Mount Sinai for how long? A year? Something like that. I think so. Britain? Um, do you think that it could be possible that it was like, it was kind of like also a symbol like that everything that they give to God is already his? Well, yeah. I mean, the whole idea of a sacrifice is really share, giving back to God what, what he's given to us. We'll never have anything of our own to give. You know, we're back to, uh, you know, our children giving us presents with the money that we've given them to give us that. I mean, that's all that we can do. We don't have anything. Well, what would you give God that He didn't give you? I don't think that's an option for us. I don't know if anything we've got that God didn't give to us. So the best we can do is take what God's given us and give it back. God's just so generous. And uh, we are so dependent on Him. It's, it, you know, we need that thought. If we don't think about it that way, it is hard for us to take our stuff and give it away to God. But when we think properly, well, it's not hard at all. It's God's stuff anyway. He gave it to us. Why would it be difficult to, for us to, to give it back to Him when He recalls it? Verse 37. What's the ordination offering? We will come to that in chapter 8. Chapter 8 and 9, we'll have, 8 particularly, we'll have the ordination offering. It's the offering for the priest's ordination. Um, so, I don't know why exactly they put it right here. Uh, it seemed like there was one verse that may have said something about the ordination offering in this first seven chapters, but I don't remember where. But the ordination offering, we'll actually see it in detail here in chapter 8. Other questions and comments on chapter 7? Why is it just the breast? Those were just the parts that God gave the priests out of the peace offering because the bulk of the animal was to be given back to the worshiper to eat in like a fellowship, almost like a Lord's Supper kind of a meal. Other questions and comments? Yeah. In 32 and 34, I have the peace offering. Is that what is? And same thing as the wave offering. <coughs> different translation. You heave it across and then you reheave it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like wave is better. But. <coughs> you know, some of our words change meaning after a while. That's one of them that might conjure up some other images. So. Alright, any other questions and comments on chapter 7? Of course, it could have been deep off right though. It was a you cattle know, that could get rather heavy. Yeah. Could be. Well, I think it was an excellent point made about uh, you know following God's precision in worship. Uh but what we see the Pharisees guilty of in the New Testament is carrying that to the point of removing their heart from the worship. They, they had all the rules, but it didn't really mean anything to them. They were just carrying out rules X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, we have to have both the, the letter of the law and 
the underlying spirit of the law because the spirit of the law uh, embodies itself, manifests itself in, in following the precision of what God has advanced. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think Max made the comment yesterday that obviously just offering the sacrifices in some sort of even precise but mechanical, non-spiritual way, the prophets are constantly criticizing that. That didn't help them. But what we need to understand is that the person who has the heart of love for God and trust in God and dependence on God and respect for God, out of a different spirit, he also will, will carefully listen to every detail of what the Lord has said because he wants to please and honor God. So, you know, um, you can get, you know... Well, we, we just need to understand that, that a heart of love for God seeks to please him in detail. Max? I, I just think it's really important to see that point. I, I've heard several here recently talking about our worship and saying that we don't worship like they did in the New Testament. And, and the implication, at first I thought they were saying that we were doing something that was you know, unscriptural or whatever. But after further talking with them, it's more the idea that they seem to have that in the New, New Testament that they just sort of worshipped off the cuff, that they just, you know, sort of came together and just did whatever. And that's just not the God we see in the, in the Bible, even in the New Testament. You know, a God of order, not of chaos. And, and uh, I just think it's important to see that, there, that God does tell us how to worship Him. Now, he may not be specific in all aspects of that, but generally He tells us that He wants our worship to be orderly. And there's nothing unspiritual about planning and preparation. Usually when we plan and prepare, it's because we really care and we're seeking to do something really well. Logan. Uh, one of the things you see both in the Old Testament and New Testament is that not only does God command you to follow him precisely, but also he commands you to do it with your heart. Because if you don't do it with your heart and spirit, then there's, then there's no point in doing it. It's in vain. Exactly. It, it takes both. But we shouldn't think that doing it with our hearts somehow means we would be less careful to, to follow what he says. <laughs> That's certainly not going to be true. If you really love God from your heart, then you listen to him. And you would never, you would never think, well, I know God said that. But you know, I think it would probably be better this way. <laughs> That's That's pride. That's a, that's a very self-focused view. Or, or I just like it better this way. We would never say that if we love God. One thing that I found um, neat through you know, what we have stated so far in Leviticus is when it says to walk in the way that spoke to Moses, you know, that's something that I found to be you know, pretty amazing, you know, that the Lord actually did, you know, have contact, you know, with Moses and that they had conversations back and forth. The Lord actually, you know, spoke to him like we speak, you know, now to each other. Absolutely. It, it's, and it makes this so exciting. I mean, because this is not something that some mere man said. This is God actually telling Moses all these things. Um, so it means that in these details that we may or may not think of as sort of tedious, it's God's breath. It's God's mouth. It's God, you know, saying, here's what I want you to hear and listen to and think about. Ben. Sometimes we, or at least I don't know, I think we get an idea that 
much of the details are like many lessons trying to focus their hearts and minds on God. Yes, it's a collaborative thing, but the way that there's certain parts of the animal that they're supposed to offer to God, the parts they get to keep, and the way that those things impart small lessons about what's important to God, what's not important, about what our relationship is to God. It's almost like subliminal messaging through this in a way. You know, sometimes we get wrapped up in, in trying to understand all the details of how and why God wants us to do this or that. And the thing is, you don't have to understand that to get the impact of it if you are willing to trust it and to obey it and live it on life. And, you know, we have this, this um, hindsight that we can look at these things and see many of the figures, see many of the things that God was teaching us about how people should relate to Him now. They didn't have that back then. The, the hindsight that we have now, but at the same time, if they're willing to trust God and take His revelation and treat it like it was the most important thing in their life, they would have gotten to the message. And today, there's many aspects of the New Testament which perhaps you know, we don't always understand, which we can't always just ration, rationalize very well and say, well, God did it for this reason or that reason. If we treat it as it is indeed the word of God and not the word of man, it's going to have its work in us. Excellent point. You know, it's kind of like if you were uh, training elementary school kids to play ball, maybe play basketball, you would probably put them through certain drills and training you would teach them to do things in a certain way. And if you take a kid who maybe has played some ball, maybe even you're breaking old habits, and at first it's really awkward to him, and he doesn't do it very well, and it doesn't seem as easy, but the well-trained basketball coach knows that as he develops his skills and as he plays against higher levels of competition, he's going to need to do this with the right form and so forth. And so some of the things that he's doing in these drills and some of the things he's learning in the training are really important and helpful to him in the long run to be a good basketball player. Well, if we can do that, if a good basketball coach, you know, thinks ahead and puts somebody through some procedures that may seem rather insignificant but actually have a very important goal in the future development of the player, how much more the Lord? What he's training these people here, and what he does with us, even when we don't understand why, has a purpose, and is training and developing and helping us to become what God wants. And I think often we can see, as we look at this from a broader perspective of even what God was trying to accomplish in the New Testament, we can see so many lessons and so many attitudes that would be developed in them if they faithfully followed these things, that will help them have a greater appreciation for what God's doing with us. And I think that's one of the things we can get out of this. We can learn so much that gives us a clearer perspective on how to be developed and perfected into servants of God like we ought to be. To really become it. Best. I think you just said that worshiping God in a proper way is something that's rather unnatural to us that we have to learn. It's a strange idea. Well, unfortunately, we've come to find sin as a sort of second nature, and uh, we have to sort of break some of those habits. Um, you know, God certainly created us perfect, but we've uh, brought out many devices, as Ecclesiastes says. Other comments and thoughts on chapter 7? All right, very good. Um, well, we, we finally move away from this manual of sacrifices and we come to the section dealing with the priesthood itself, particularly the ordination and consecration and installation 
and first service of the priests. Now, in Exodus 28 and 29, we had some instructions given by God for the priestly garments and then for actually consecrating the priests. And these, what we're going to learn in Leviticus 8 and 9, will be fulfilling these orders God had given for the establishment of the priesthood. I think, in some ways, we would have seen it more logical to have followed up the construction of the tabernacle at the end of Exodus with the fulfillment of these instructions, the ordination of the priests. However, the ordination of the priests were going to involve a number of sacrifices that we really don't know anything about yet in the uh, Old Testament narrative. And so rather than continue right on into the next step, the ordination of the priests to serve in the tabernacle, he inserts this section of Leviticus 1-7, through the manual of sacrifice, so that we now know and understand what these sacrifices mean that are going to be used in the priest's ordination and in a whole lot of other things as well. That's how I see the logic of this, for whatever that's worth. Um, at any rate, we have come to the, the point of establishing the priesthood. Do you have any questions or comments before we plunge into chapter 8? <coughs> okay, would somebody read chapter 8, verses 1 to 5? <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with them, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Okay. Basically, what do you have here, happening here? Assembling the provisions for the... Yes, exactly. We are sort of gathering up the materials and the participants and the congregation for being able to carry out this consecration of the priests. So he needs Aaron and his sons. Those are the ones going to be consecrated. He needs the garments, the oil, and the various offerings. And he needs the congregation. And uh, when God told Moses to do this, what did Moses do? Yes. Good idea, don't you think? This is uh, what we're supposed to do. And in this chapter, 12 times it will mention that the Lord commanded something. And seven times it will specifically say, just as the Lord commanded. This is a chapter where God's going to tell them what to do and they're going to do it. And when we God tells us what to do and we do it, we'll see at the end of chapter 9, there's a great blessing that comes as a result of that. Um, in this situation where the priests are being consecrated or being ordained. And by the way, the priests would be who? Aaron and his sons. How many did he have? Four. And their names were? Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. So we've got five men being consecrated here. But... 
normally, from here on out, it's going to be Aaron and his sons that are going to do these things associated with the sacrifices and the service. But they're just, they're the subjects of this. They're the ones being consecrated. So who's going to be able to act as the priest and be able to, you know, offer the sacrifices and all that for them? Moses. Moses. Moses is sort of the priest's priest in this. He sort of assumes the role of priest temporarily while we're getting the priesthood installed. Comments and questions on the first five verses. Maybe a little premature to ask, but... Besides Moses being a type, what do you think about him acting as leader and priest? Well, I hadn't thought about that, but that's an interesting idea. Uh, because in a way, Moses then would be prophet, priest, and king because of Deuteronomy 18. The prophet, like Moses, he was certainly the leader, and here he's the priest. I never thought about that before, but that's a cool idea. Now, he would be a type of Christ more, more strongly even in that way. Point. Only human to be allowed to be both a you know priest and a king at the same time. A king to offer sacrifice. Yeah. Under ordinary circumstances, kings and priests never fulfilled uh, each other's functions. Without but in one Ill. sense, yeah, that's right. Or uh, leprosy breaking out on them in the case of Isaiah. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, here God's using the the leader as a priest, at least temporarily, for the purpose of installing the priesthood. Other comments? He was, to a great extent, also uh, in those three offices at the same time. Um, it's interesting when you see some of those foreshadowings of Jesus. And, and there's definitely many things in the Bible that would, would, would depict Jesus as a second Moses. In fact, there's a fellow in the New Testament that, uh, that had a, a long discourse, and in a good part of it, he paralleled Moses and Jesus. Who was that? In Stephen, yes. Because he paralleled him to Joseph and to Moses in Acts chapter 7. So you can definitely stand on good, solid biblical ground to see Jesus as a second Moses in so many ways. And in fact, you see that in the first chapters of Matthew as, you know, Jesus was kind of fulfilled the role of Moses and Israel. You're coming out of Egypt, passing through the water of baptism, so to speak, uh, going through the wilderness for 40 days, and then up on the mountain to receive or to give the law. Logan. Even though you can see uh, definitely that Moses was a foreshadowing of Jesus, but at the same time you see that Jesus was even greater because he not only acted as the priest, uh, he was also the one who was being sacrificed. Yes. In all of these foreshadowings of Jesus, Jesus is the ideal. <laughs> None of the... The shadow never equals the reality. Could... I don't know. Could God have been thinking ahead when Moses when he had Moses be a Levite so that this would kind of work a little better I don't know logistically speaking you're saying uh, as a Levite it would be better for him to be priest than if he'd have been yeah, from some other tribe these tasks, it would, I don't know. yeah 
I'd say, I mean, you know, the Lord kind of fits this all in, and, you know, so many things seem to happen really well coincidentally, but we know it's not coincidental. The Lord's got this all worked out. Well, later on, it wouldn't have been uh, right for Moses to serve as priest. That's correct. This is a temporary function of his till we get the priests installed, and then Moses' job in this way will be over. But for a brief time, he's functioning, essentially, as a priest. Anything else that you'd like to say or ask about through 8.5? Throughout this whole chapter, and we'll see that even more strongly as we go through this, yes. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to think about uh, one of the last uh, public uh, acts of Moses. Not, not long before. A few months before, perhaps. God uh, rehabilitates individuals and uses them even after they fail. Anything else? Okay, how about six to nine? Then Moses and Aaron and his sons came near and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him and girded him with a sash, and clothed him with the robe, and put an ephod on him. And he girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it. He then placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim. He also placed the turban on his head, and on the turban at its front he placed a golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so uh, what do what are the um, sort of these uh, procedures that are taking place here with Aaron and his son? Even before they dressed them. They washed them even before they washed them. They come near, which is actually a verb that's sometimes used for the bringing of sacrificial animals to the Lord. Maybe the idea that they're being given over to the Lord. And then they wash them with water. And then they put these special clothes on them. Um, there are various garments here. Uh, certain ones for the high priest and others for all the uh, Aaron and his sons. And I'm not an expert on all these garments, so we'll uh, turn those questions over to those who are. Um, but but they, they're, they're put in their special priestly garb, including in the breast piece, there's a special item. What is that? Yeah, what's the Urim and Thummim? All right, yeah, it's sometimes translated that, but what is it? Perhaps, what were they used for? Yeah, somehow or other, perhaps people could ask question, and these Urim and Thummim were able to communicate God's answer. We don't know exactly how that worked. Some have theorized that, you know, this is like, I don't know, uh, some procedure by which... You can get a yes answer, a no answer, or a no answer. <laughs> uh, perhaps if you um, have maybe, uh, if you had two coins, heads and tails, they both come up heads, it's yes, they both come up tails, it's no. If one comes up heads and one comes up tails, the Lord isn't answering. I don't think they were necessarily coins, but perhaps it was some procedure like that in which God could actually respond to questions through the priests, through using the Urim and Thummim. At least that's kind of the theory that I've heard that makes some sense to me. 
There's not a lot of references to the Urim and Thummim throughout the scriptures, although there are some times when the ephod is mentioned, when I think that that's a reference to using the Urim and Thummim out of the priestly garments. Well, uh, hopefully you won't have any questions about any of this. Um, well, David, yeah, there are times when David would consult the Lord or, or whatever that may be a reference to him consulting through the Urim and the Thummim. I, I think that may be the case. I don't know that those words are used very often in connection with David. Uh, I think Rebecca has said, bring the linen ephod or the ephod here or something like that. Yes, that, even said. with Saul, he had the ephod brought. Uh, you might look at 1 Samuel 28, when uh, Saul's basically cut off from the Lord and he finally seeks the Lord's will through a witch medium. But in 1 Samuel 28, 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Those would be ways that the Lord could communicate with someone, but with Saul, he was cut off from that altogether and he didn't communicate in any of those ways. Other questions and comments through verse 9. Could be used for, like, just to show approval or something. Well, like, the children of Ezra talks about that the, I guess, the false prophets, or the prophets, I'm sorry, the priests um, that are excluded cannot eat of the most holy things until the priests are up in the area. Yes, that's Ezra 2.63, I think. Um, and the idea is there were some of the priests that could not find their ancestral registry to prove their lineage. And so they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them, Ezra 2.63, that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with Urim and Thummim. Now, my guess is that this is the priest having the Urim and Thummim in, through which they can consult the Lord and inquire and ask if these guys really were priests. Since they could not prove it through their registry, then we'll have to ask the Lord specifically to see if they are or not. That's my guess. After Aaron passed away, how would they determine who would be the high priest? Somebody may need to help me on that, but I think it would be the oldest descendant of Aaron. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Kelly. Well, this is a comment on this. It seems to me sort of a contrast. On one hand, God is there among them showing that he wants to live there among them. On the other hand, he's very distant from everyone except well, Moses at this point and eventually Aaron. I mean, they're called to the door of the tent of the meeting, but no one can go in any closer. And again, it's just kind of a contrast. God wants to be there among them, but he is going to be treated as holy and separate from all the people except this one person really once a year. And you've kind of just got this holy gathering that we envision and see all this crowd at the door of the meeting that can't approach God any closer. And there's this very 
regimen and ceremony. But yeah, you're exactly right. Why wouldn't God allow these people to get closer to him than that if he wants fellowship with them? Reverence. Yes. More, more importantly, sin. sin. Yeah. What if these sinful people had come into God's presence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no way. The sin is a barrier, and if they were to come close to God in their sinful condition, that would have been a tragedy. So, God lets them get as close as they can safely get. That's my view. done through us in Christ has taken away the barrier. And you remember what happened when Jesus died. Kind of symbolized taking away the barrier, but what happened? The veil was torn, starting at the top. God was tearing that. Senator, you want to listen to this and see if it's somebody that needs to know how to get here or whatever. only by God's grace. It's not that he is uh, suddenly uh, compromised with sin, but by his grace he's made provision for sin to be punished in Christ and to enable us to come close to him despite what we have done. We need to give thanks to God and certainly maintain our reverence and respect for him. In, in Hebrews 12.10, he disciplines us that we may share in his holiness. Excellent. Exactly. What is the ephod exactly? What part of that? Yeah, what's the ephod? I don't. It, it, it's a it's a jacket type thing that the priest wore. Sounds good to me. I'm I'm not sure that the uh, uh, would that have been just for the high priest or for. Uh, I think just for the high priest. Yeah. What I've got written down from from what I've uh, studied, the 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 high priest would wear the ephod, the breast piece, the robe, and the gold plate exclusively, and all the priests would wear a tunic, a sash, a turban, and the the breeches. Um, those. So I think just the high priest. 
Other questions and comments? Okay. 10 to 13. <clears throat> Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all the utensils and the basin and its stands to consecrate them. Then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him and consecrated him. Next, Moses and Aaron's sons came near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound clasps on them. Just the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. What are we doing here? All right, we're anointing the tabernacle in 10 and in 11. The altar and the stuff of the altar. And in 12, Aaron on his head. And then in 13, what do we do with Aaron and his sons? Or Aaron's sons, actually. Yes, exactly. And as we saw in the end of 9, also in the end of 13, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So after the wa- after they're washed, they're anointed, and they're clothed. Um, there might be some things to think about in terms of, of parallels with, with Jesus. Uh, Jesus obviously was washed even in, in his baptism. And, and he was anointed by God. Uh, he was the preeminent one anointed. The word Christ means anointed one. In Acts 10, in Peter's speech to Cornelius in verse 38, you know how, of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit with power and so forth. All right, comments and questions on this section. James. Was Aaron the only one anointed? Or was the son's anointed? I think at this point it's just Aaron in verse 12. Um, they are all going to uh, be anointed in, in some ways. For example, in uh, verse uh, 30, Moses will take some of the anointing oil and some of the blood and sprinkle it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, etc. But I think so far it's just on Aaron. Uh, I don't know who who knows something about bound caps on them. I assume that is like the turban. That's what Hunt says. It says turbans in in verse uh, thirteen. Okay. Uh, Now mine says bound caps thirteen, but in nine it says mine says hats. (laughs) Headgear. Somebody got a definitive. Okay. You got him online? Uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, that, that's what I would assume, is that we're still going back to the same basic clothing that had been uh, acquired previously. Yes, Kelly? Uh, two things. One, I'll comment on this as well, but here he's anointed as though he's he's installed, he's set apart for this specific service. The kings were done. This anointing was done for them. Jesus, obviously. But isn't that what John's speaking of in First John, that we have an anointing and in a sense that we're, we're set aside for this special task? 
Yeah, I think I think the anointing in, in First John is the the teaching, the revelation that God gives us. But yeah, maybe there's some symbolism there. And this is backtracking a little bit, but in, in eight and six rather, where he says, "And watch the water," is this? I think this is any kind of shadow of baptism in the sense that it wasn't such a shock to them when people were you know, people who started following Jesus were immersed into him. It was a ritual that they were familiar. with. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of cleansing with water in the Old Testament that is a foreshadowing of baptism. It may not always be, you know, precisely the same in, in details and in function, but we certainly have a lot of emphasis in the Old Testament on cleansing through water. <clears throat> Other questions, comments, Logan? Uh, when the, talking about the priest being anointed with oil, Jesus was also speak as being the anointed one, is that uh, perhaps the symbolism that Jesus would be referring to when he was praying in the garden, guessing me, asking, Father, please take this cup from me? Right. The idea of taking the cup from him, I think, is the Old Testament concept of the cup of God's wrath that would be given to someone to drink, so to speak, and experience God's judgment, God's punishment. So I think this Taking the cup away is taking away the wrath of God from you. James. Um, the ephod in verse 7, that was only put on the high priest, right? Yes. And then the clothes down in verse 13 are put on all the priests. Yes. I believe that is right. Mm -hmm. Eric. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting. <clears throat> that this golden plate was in the sermon, didn't it say it was engraved on it, holy to the Lord? I think so. I Don't ask me for a passage. It's just 2836. Okay. It was just a cross Um But I thought that was interesting. It's a kind of a visual way um, to remember what they were supposed to be to the Lord. You know, constantly. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just was the same. You know, when the high priest, they wore the ephod instead of the two. Maybe the only difference. Did the high priest wear the ephod and not the tunic? Wore them both? I don't know the answer. Wore them both? That would have been what I assumed, but I don't know. I thought that both the priest and the high priest both wore the tunic. Right. Okay. Well, I don't think there are any you know, wear the same ones. There's no shoes described here, just like the Moses came to burn bugs. Interesting thought. Other comments and questions? Josh? How would he anoint the tabernacle? That's a good question. You have uh, more questions than I have answers. How did he anoint the tabernacle? Tabernacle's big, though. So what's he doing? Just kind of... Putting some oil on different parts of it? Yeah, absolutely. The, it's symbolic, so it's not a functional thing to anoint it. But, uh, I don't know. The comfort I take in some of these questions is that I'm not the only one who doesn't know. <laughs> But I have learned there is more I don't know about Leviticus than what I do. <laughs> Managed to convince me of that so far. Other comments and questions? 
Nice. I just think one of the challenging things and, and, and fun things about studying things like this is, is like this this thing about the priests and what's going on here and and, and all, and the fact that you know, we're referred to as priests and trying to see the connections with what was expected of them, what was done for them, and and obviously you know as we pointed out, these are shadows. We're the reality, and so you know that's the challenge is to try to to see in this what we're to be as priests. What do you learn from this about what we're to be as priests? Holy. Holy. What will that mean for us? We'll be different. We'll be different. Okay. We'll carefully do what God says. Yes. There's a special service for us. We'll understand. Yes. We'll reflect God's character. Absolutely. That, that's what I was saying in reference to what Eric was saying. You were holy to the Lord. That wasn't just for them. That's us. Yes. Absolutely. And you have uh, a prophetic statement um, that I think is regard, regarding the Messianic age in the very end of Zechariah, in Zechariah 14, uh, 20. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. I think the idea is, in the Messianic age, even ordinary daily things are holy to the Lord. It's not now just a special place with a special class of people that are holy to the Lord. All Christians in every part of their life are supposed to be set apart to God and special for Him. That is a very challenging concept. It's Zechariah 14, 20, and 21. The last two verses of Zechariah. Anything else through 13? Alright. The next section deals with various sacrifices that were offered. I think we'll do the same thing we've done and read this whole section and I'd like for you to try to visualize the procedure and also try to figure out what are the natural divisions here. Can you sort out the various sacrifices that are to be offered? So would somebody read 14 to 30? And he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering, and he killed it. Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat. And Moses burned them on the altar. But the bowl and his skin and its flesh and his tongue he burned out, up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hand, hands on the head of the ram and killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat, and he washed the entrails and legs with water. And Moses burned the whole ram in the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord. 
as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Moses and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on it, on the head of the ram, and killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood in the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar, and he took the fat and the fat tails, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat on the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of the fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and he waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. And Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Okay. Now, aren't you glad that we have studied the first seven chapters of Leviticus? Now this makes more sense, at least to some extent, in terms of what's being said and what's being done. We know something about the sacrificial procedure. So, let's divide this up. First of all, go back to verse uh, 2. What were the animals involved that had been collected together at the very beginning of this, just like you get all your tools together before you start the job? What animals have they got together? A bull and two rams. A bull and two rams. All right. So we come on over now, starting in 14, and how many sections would you divide this up into? Three, Shane says. Which three? Burnt the same of the bull. Okay, you got the bull, the first round, the second round. The bull was for what offering? Sin. First round was for a burnt offering. Second round was for a ordination offering. Kind of a special thing that would not normally be offered, so it's not in the manual of sacrifices. This is a one-time thing as we're ordaining these priests. So let's look at these in some detail. In 14 to 17... You have the bull of the sin offering. And uh, he brings this bull of the sin offering as, as earlier Aaron and his sons had been brought to the Lord. And um, you go through this procedure. Um, what do they do when Moses brings the bull of the sin offering? What happens next? Who? So this bull represents them. They put their hand on the head of the bull of the sin offering. Then Moses kills it, and what does he do with the blood? Yes, and purifies the altar. And the rest he does what? They're at the base of the altar. And so he's consecrated the altar. What does he do with the fat? And the rest of the bowl burned outside the camp. Now think about some of the lessons in this. The 
fact that the very first offering that's made in the consecration procedure is a sin offering should teach us what? Praise God to be sinless. <clears throat> yes. In order to be able to offer the purification sacrifices for us, they've got to have their sins removed. They've got to be purified. Guilt needs to be removed before we can move forward in this. That's a key point. We've got to purify the priests so that the priests then can serve before the Lord. And what else had to be purified with the sin offering besides the priests themselves? The altar. The altar. We've got to purify it before we use it. And uh, so that's what's being done in this bull of the sin offering. Comments and questions? Shane. I have a question and a comment. Uh, my question is, before, when they did the burnt offering and a peace offering, I mean, not the peace offering, but the burnt offering and the sin offering, didn't the sacrificer kill it? Yes. And why is Moses killing it here? Does that have anything to do with, is it, this, I mean, is it specific? Is that like something you had to do when you're consecrating the priest? I had a question about that as well. It seems... I thought Aaron killed it, because in verse 15 it says, and he killed it, and, Mo and Moses took the blood. It seems as if that Aaron killed it, and then Moses took the blood, is how I saw it. That's interesting, because in my, uh, and Kyle, you can work on this if you want to, but in, in my margin it says, literally, he slaughtered it, and Moses took. And what verse? In 15. Mine says, next, Moses slaughtered it. Yeah, but in my margin it says, literally, he slaughtered it and Moses took. So that's interesting. Anybody want to offer an intelligent comment on this? Do what? The pattern was for the offerer to kill the, the sacrificial animal. That was why I found it weird, because he had done he had said before that, that the offer was to, was to kill the animal. But here, my, my version says that Moses killed it and took the blood, etc., etc., I think I studied something about this, but I don't remember what, so. We have too many translations in here. <laughs> yeah, the verb uh, and took was connected with Moses. Okay. So it killed and took it was connected with Moses. So it probably is correct that Moses is the one who killed it. I don't know an explanation for that. Anybody want to offer one? It doesn't make much sense that way. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't do the purpose of the sin offering. Yeah. If Moses kills it, did you conclude that Moses killed it? That's what Kyle thinks in the Hebrew. Then wouldn't this be a carrying up of the first thing, the anointing of the high priest, and just spill the head of him, and this is the first offering that won't happen anymore? Perhaps. I mean, normally the offerer killed his own animal, so this is. But maybe this is an offering Moses is making for them somehow. Although they put their hands on it, Aaron and his sons. I, I don't have an answer. And I don't remember what I studied about this, although I do think I read some things about it. Uh, certainly it's carrying out God's orders. God can modify the procedure. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yes? Wasn't the sin offering also taken inside? If it was for the high priest, yes. Right. So why wasn't it? That's correct. 
Well, or, or this, I mean, these are special offerings for the ordination of the priest. Maybe some details are different. I'm not sure what to say about that. My Bible says next Moses started it, but it's had a few mistranslations before, so it could be incorrect. I don't have good answers. Those are good questions. It's really it's encouraging that you guys are reading observantly and connecting back with other things we've studied. The next time we go through Leviticus, maybe we can remember more of the questions we need to think through and try to find answers to. Okay? Other comments and questions through 17? Shane? Uh, that's my comment. I was going to say that before when I studied Leviticus in our Bible study class, mostly the, what our teacher stressed was that God was trying to get them, the people of Israel to be as holy as possible. Like it says in Leviticus, Leviticus 19.2, it says, Be holy as I am holy. And so what he's doing here with the priest is trying to tell, is showing them that they need to be ho- as much as possible as holy as he is, or else they cannot they cannot do these things as priests without being as holy as they can be. I'll buy that. Yeah, good point. Would it be possible that there's some connection with Moses needing... Uh, uh, there, there being some relationship about Moses and his holiness or his relationship to God there. That would be interesting. The only thing I see immediately that would cause me to question that is Aaron and his sons were the ones that put yeah. their hands yeah, on it. Yeah, but it is interesting that Moses didn't eat yeah. the sin offering. He burned it outside the camp. Uh, even though, interestingly, even though the blood wasn't taken inside the holy place. So I'm not sure how to deal with all of that. Maybe Moses in some way was connected with this. Is an offering for him too? Kyle? Uh, I was, I think this may be more confusing. No, but as they translate this literally here, uh, if they have it ambiguous, uh, they have it that and one took and killed it, and then Moses took the blood and put it on the one's elder. No, maybe it is ambiguous. Maybe. And maybe it was a sin offering for Moses as well, because uh, generally speaking, the uh, leader was not supposed to be a priest as well, so at the same time, uh, it was also, you know, the way God told Moses to do it, it was also covering for... Of course, I don't think it had been sinful for him to follow the Lord's orders here, yeah, but I'm sure he was a sinful man, and so he would... Yeah. Well, perhaps it would be appropriate. <laughs> James? This would not have been high priest at this time. Right. So, this would not have had to follow the pattern for a priestly burnout. Okay. Uh, then there's some truth to that, too. Yeah. He's going to become priest through all this procedure. Logan? It says at the end of verse 17, it says, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So, honestly, I uh, agree with James that this that since there was no high priest yet, that things might have been done a little differently since this was only a temporary thing for Moses to be the priest. Uh, I, I hope it's not too far of a stretch, but this uh, this sin sacrifice uh, intended for the purification of the priests uh, kind of made me think about uh, Jesus and, and the importance of Jesus' sinlessness. Because both, in order for the for these priests to be able to offer sacrifices for other people, both the animal being brought and the priest had to both be pure. 
and Jesus serving as both our priest and the sacrifice, that magnifies the importance of his purity as both the priest and the sacrifice for our sins. And interestingly, Jesus didn't have to be purified to have that purity. He had that inherently, and that's the key to Jesus. <clears throat> this isn't how far, but Exodus 40, 31, when this same procedure is being described as what we see now being played out here in the it says, and from it, talking about the, the, the labor, from it, Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands. Maybe that was the only purification that Moses went through as a part of his role. Okay. Then. What do they do to consecrate a new high priest whenever Aaron would die? Would they go through this whole procedure? Who would do it? Didn't the high priest, didn't he retire like after a certain age? He had to quit and so, well, something like that. And so that he would do, he would fulfill the part of Moses here before he stepped down. I don't know the answer to these questions. Good questions. I I always thought that the high priest had to quit at a certain time because if there's a possibility that old age it also uh, that is psychopath or he could have physical disabilities. So was there a provision where the high priest was to quit serving, or was that just for the ordinary priests? I'm not sure about that. You've got some really good questions. I don't know the answer. Some of you guys are asking the questions. I've studied some of this stuff more than I have. So. <laughs> well, there are some other things that are different about this. In what sense? Well, the body of the animal is taken outside. Yes. And burned instead of on the altar. Yes. Well... The sin offering, the body wouldn't have been offered on the altar, but it would have been eaten by the priest unless the blood had been taken into the holy place. But in this case, he's burning the body of the animal outside the camp like he would have for the sacrifice for the high priest or for the congregation. And yet, we wouldn't have assumed that the sacrifice was for Moses and why couldn't he have eaten of it. So yeah, that is a difference. Change? Something about J.D. 7 on the same hand that's right. And so it shows the importance of being pure and being holy in front of God and being a sacrifice. Sure. Got good questions. We need better answers, but Eric. Real quick, um, we talked about in the manual of sacrifices, like the worshiper would do all that they can do and the priest would do their part as well. I, I couldn't remember exactly how that went, but it doesn't seem like Moses is doing kind of the priestly part and the priest are doing or the sons of yeah, that's true, except for Moses killing. Okay. But yeah, the priests would always uh, take care of the blood, and they would put the the pieces of the sacrifice on the altar and dispose of the animal. The priest would do that. Normally, the worshiper would kill and dismember and, you know, skin and so forth the animal. 
in, uh, in Numbers 20, when Aaron died, in Numbers 20, uh, beginning verse 23, they were to take Aaron and his son Eliezer, uh, and verse 25, bring them up to Mount Hor, strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on his son Eliezer. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. That That's part of the answer. That's not the whole thing. But uh, There you don't see a consecration ceremony. Is it possible that this consecration ceremony was to start the priesthood, but it wouldn't be followed with each new high priest? That's what I had assumed before somebody asked the question. But you asked the question, and it was like, well, I don't really know. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So from that we would assume that they wouldn't have to be re-anointed. That's an interesting point, Exodus forty fifteen. Maybe that would be the answer. I think that's the case. The question was, do they have to go through this? you know, consecration procedure. And perhaps from Exodus 40, the idea is once the priesthood was consecrated, that was the consecration for Aaron and his sons. In Numbers 9, um, 25, well, 23 through 25, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meetings, but at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from the service and the work and not work anymore. So that's Numbers 8, 23 to 25. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. The question would be, does that apply to the high priest? Uh, but perhaps it does. I don't know. That, but that's what we're seeing here in Leviticus 8. It would have seemed to me from reading it more like doing it to Aaron and his sons consecrates the priesthood perpetually, but I may be seeing that wrongly. Is that? The numbers 8 verses the 23 to 25, that'll sort of partly, I guess that serves to my question yesterday about how, how could the priest, the high priest when he sins, bring the bull because uh, up till they're 25, the Levite's children, they you know how people could take care of the uh, bulls and all that. And Perhaps, but I think the priests could also do some farming work. Work, I would Maybe, think. But. Yeah, but they were dedicated to the Lord and the work of the work in the temple, so they couldn't go out and do other things as well. Maybe so. I don't know. Gary, yes. One thought: um, with the seeds of refuge and people could try there. They had to. They couldn't be free until the high priest died. That's a good point. So to me, it didn't take until he retired until he dies. That's a good point. She said that 
you know, when you fled for uh, asylum to the city of refuge, you stayed there until the death of the high priest. I believe that is right. Maybe that's an indication that the high priest served until he died. That also is what I'd always thought, but I wasn't sure why. That's a good point. Bruce? In chapter 21, it talks about the concentration of the high priest and why... And then in verse 10, chapter 21, he's speaking to the sons. Uh, the priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. I take that after Aaron is dead, the next one in the highest in position is going to be consecrated and anointed with oil. Well, that's an interesting thought. That's uh, Leviticus 21.10. That's, yeah. That might be the way to take that. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Would that be an indication that they actually did go through the anointing oil in the ceremony for each priest that served as high priest? You guys uh, do one thing really well. You, uh, well, two things. You ask a lot of questions. If there's any prize for questions, you guys get it. But you also are willing to really think and study and work in this. That's helpful. You know, and I also, I will say again, I know some of you really work to prepare for the study. That's really helpful. I appreciate you doing that. Not all of you could. But those who did, that's, that's helpful. And, uh, you know, if there's anything that's obvious in, in these studies, it's that no one of us knows everything. We've just got to share with each other and help each other. And, uh, that's, that's a good thing about any Bible class. Our goal is to edify, to learn, but also to edify and teach others. And uh, it's helpful that you're willing to do that, willing to share your insights. And may not give us the definitive answer, but it may at least point some directions for us to go and study. <laughs> and have more questions we don't know the answers to. <laughs> we don't know the answer to your back question either. Yeah, okay, that's probably right. Well, was that I just came across this that anointing oil is a special brew in Exodus 30. And uh, 30 and 30, usually anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them with the minister of priest to me, 31, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This should be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generation. This shall not be poured on anyone's head or body. So maybe that would be another indication that they kept it. That they perhaps are using it to consecrate the subsequent high priest? Could it be that the anointing would take place? Because that would kind of make sense that a new high priest would be anointed, but the rest of this didn't happen? Could it be that it's just the anointing, but they didn't go through the other sacrifices and so forth? Well, I mean, really, if you stop and think about it, here in Leviticus 8, this is for all the priesthood. This is not just for Aaron. So that might lead us to the question, was each priest consecrated and, you know, go through some ceremony? We might have a harder time coming up with passages to support that or to imagine that. But, I mean, that's what you've got here. It's Aaron and his son. I don't know where that leaves us.
wives have a hard time imagining that then later on when they have their children reach a certain age, they just kind of walk up to the temple and help do it. Maybe that's just a, something you get over my mind. But I just doesn't seem to fit with what God wants. That makes some sense to me, right? I was going to say, that was kind of my point last night when I was saying, why do we struggle with this? But they seem to just know what to do. I mean, was there something besides this? I mean, I know somebody said, well, they had Moses and so forth, but they weren't going to have him forever. At some point, it would probably come down to reading what the law said because they obviously lost it for a time, and then, you know, they get it back. You know, could they just read this and understand it? Or are we just struggling because... <laughs> for me, I think I struggle because I don't go for it. That, that's what I think for me. There's probably still some unanswered questions. There's sure there's some details we can't get all the answers to. But when I hear you, you all answering your questions, it makes me realize, you know, even in Leviticus, you point out some things that I wouldn't think about in answering those questions. Because while I've studied this quite a bit in the last few months, two or three months, it still isn't like I know this that well. And it's certainly not like I've been in very many studies of it. You know, when it comes to Mark or Acts or Revelation or something like that, man, I've studied it over and over, taught it over and over and over and over, been in classes and, you know, I mean, you know, every detail is in your mind. You know where the verses are for everything. And you just kind of think in those terms. I, that, to me, man, if I knew this better, it would help me a lot. I would even feel a little more confident in saying, I don't think we got the answer to this question. Because, I mean, you ask some questions in the New Testament, and some of those, I mean, you know, you can say, Hey, you know, and what if we said, um, you know, what details are given in the New Testament, say, for the installation of an elder or a preacher? Many of us would probably have at least some passages in mind and would have some things that we could say, <coughs> excuse me, that, that no, there's not anything said about that. And other things we'd say, well, you know, here, here, and here are some things to look at. Logan. Uh, I think I have an answer to the last question that, uh, first of all, part of the law we don't have because when Jerusalem was destroyed, much of the old law was lost. And then also you have to remember that uh, the the young men who came in as priests, most of them would have older brothers working in the temple, so they could easily have been taught by those priests who were already doing the work. The second point may be valid. The first point is we have all the old law that, that they had. It was not destroyed by the temple or by Jerusalem. There are many, many copies of it. Well, they know copies in Greek and other. We've got some copies from prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. So, Josh? Yeah. With the passage where it says um, that Aaron and Eleazar um, will be taken up to whatever God, no, and Aaron will be stripped of his clothes. Would that be while Aaron was still living, but just close to death, or? I think so. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It kind of sheds new light, new light on why the psalmist in Psalm 119 meditated on the Lord's word day and night. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, Kelly. But on that point, you know, I mean, it would be so easy just to kind of, if you were there, just see all this happening and to be some kind of moron 
and not really think about it. I mean, really, I mean, I mean to not really think about what we're doing when we worship here or where I mean, to not really engage our minds and, and appreciate who God is. And I think it's so easy for them just to, oh, look at them, they're killing the bull now, and really not think about what that means. And um, kind of going back to Max's question, uh, I, I really would in my head on what you're saying here. I mean, for me anyway, so much of this is so problematic for us because we just don't know these things. We haven't really thought, we may have read them, but we haven't really thought about how does this really work and then what did it mean? I mean, it just really takes some, some effort and therefore meditation on the law. It just makes you realize how much more there is to study and learn. I mean, just constantly see that more and more. You, you realize that, you know, I mean, I've tried pretty hard to study the Bible for 30 years, but there's so much of it. I know so little about when it's all said and done. And, and you know, you, you learn it to your own satisfaction. You know, you read through it and study through it. and Okay, I understand this. And it's really great to have a study in which people ask questions and talk and you realize, wow, you know, I thought I understood some of this. And, and you realize there's so much more to learn. I think what that needs to do is just push us to grow in our knowledge, to keep studying and meditating day and night. And trying not only to understand the details, but also to think through the meaning. Why is this in here? What should we get out of this? And one of the things that I've tried to really encourage, and several of you are in this category, some of you who are younger in here, man, take advantage of the fact that you've got more time when you're single than you'll have when you're married, more time when you're married than you will when you have children or married, etc., and, and grow now. Learn everything you can learn. because It'll never, it'll never be too much. <laughs> you know, you always wish that you had done even more. And uh, so. Other comments, questions, thoughts? To beat the dead horse uh, in Ephesians <laughs> 40 and 43, it seems to me that it is saying that 43, it should be a statute forever committed to the that they will anoint, that whoever's going to do it, I don't know. Yeah, you've almost convinced me of that in some of these things, and also including the passage about the anointing oil, that perhaps we ought to imagine at least some sort of an ordination ceremony, but then are we saying that, I suppose, for each priest as he comes of age? Well, there's precedent, no, there'll be precedent for that, that for what's already been done, so that'll be their best, best instructions, the, the examples already been given. So somebody can come up with something better, the passages you've used seem to indicate that to me. What was the last one you described? Exodus 28, 40, 40 to 43. It's not like the Lord has asked things of them, of us, that may seem stupid and unnecessary. And in a sense, this seems rather logical. I mean, that, you know, new priest comes along, he needs to be cleansed and consecrated and purified to be able to offer the service. I mean, you can see some logic behind that if that is what's being done. Alright. Anything else through 17? We have a two-year study of Leviticus. Who knows? <laughs> this, is, this is a different this is a subject. Well, we're glad for that. <laughs> I was just thinking about the sin offering to these priests and Aaron, how 
Aaron is fully acquainted with temptation and moral failure when you think about the golden calf incident that occurred. And, and he's going to stand in place of interceding on behalf of these people, this congregation of people who are aware of Aaron's sins and his you know, mishaps. And it also gives us hope because we see that God has chosen Aaron to be in this position, which is testimony to God's forgiving nature. It's exactly right. And you have the bull of the sin offering here. <laughs> and then later in chapter 9, he will offer a bull, a calf, uh, for the sin offering for the people. And uh, it's just interesting that he, you know, previously had been associated with a calf in a rather unfavorable light. And it does indicate that there is service, not just forgiveness, but there's service for those who have failed. I, I do think we need to see that. I think that is right. You know, that we can have done something really bad, and it doesn't mean the Lord can't use us again. And certainly Peter is an excellent example of that in the New Testament. Logan? Uh, one thing that I think that we do as uh, humans uh, far too often is that we try to categorize sin not by the way that's uh, outlined in the Old Testament with the less of the flesh, less of the eyes, and the pride of life, but we try to categorize it by how bad it is. Like, we want to say that perhaps killing someone would be a lot worse than a lie, so we're better off. Well, God doesn't look at it that way. No one sin is worse than the other in Him. All of them are disobeying Him, and He offers the same amount of forgiveness for all of them. Certainly, it's true that forgiveness is there for all sins. There may still be some distinction in, in sins that God makes, but but Sin separates us from God, but God's willing to forgive us from all our sins. First uh, John 1, 9. Ben? God was choosing man to be the high priest for his people, so I think he'd possibly be doing the sacrifice. You know, being danger, maybe being caught up in the idea, well, it's just something I did in my job. You know? He would want a man to understand fully what he's been doing, and would understand the need for him to be forgiveness. And just think of him, considering what Aaron's been through, he would know that really better than him. Good point. And then you have the ram of the burnt offering in 18 to 21. And what's the procedure here? What's the first thing they do after they present the ram of the burnt offering? Aaron and his sons lay their hands on its head. Then again, we've got the same ambiguity perhaps, but, but in my text, Moses kills it, sprinkles the blood around on the altar, and uh, cuts it up and offers the head and various pieces on the altar, washes the entrails and the legs with water, and offers the whole ram in smoke. Why the whole ram? It's the burnt offering. In the burnt offering, the whole animal was offered to God, uh, just as, as God commanded here. So first it's the bowl of the sin offering, then it's the ram of the burnt offering. It is very common, not every time, we'll talk about the exceptions, at least sometimes, uh, sometime uh, in, in this, but it's very common, the sin offering first and then the burnt offering. We need to be purified from our sins before we can be consecrated and given to God. Comments and questions through 21. So, it seems almost like the sacrifice of the bulls to make a for God for itself. I think so, 
maybe both, but yes, certainly it purified the altar. That's explicitly said in the text. And then you've got the ram of the ordination offering, which is a really interesting uh, one. Um, Look at the procedure here. First thing that was done in 22 after he presents the second ram is laid their hands on the head of the ram. Then Moses, again ambiguous, but Moses kills it. And he takes the blood and does what with it? Yeah. Puts it on Aaron's ear, his uh, right thumb, and his right big toe. And then he does the same thing with Aaron's sons. Puts it on their ear, thumb, and big toe. That's kind of weird, yes. You know, the only idea I have as far as why it's there, right here and so on and so forth, is, I don't know if it was back then as well, but today in the Middle East, the left hand, left foot, and so on is considered unclean. Okay, I don't know about that. We have the idea of the right hand uh, as being sort of the favored position. Jesus yeah. sat down at the right hand of God. We talk about a right hand man. Uh, no... Uh, no offense to those of you who are left-handed. But, uh, so, but why? I mean, first place, it's kind of, ooh, kind of gross. You're taking this ram's blood and you're putting it on your ear and the thumb and the big toe. Uh, but it also seems kind of bizarre. You know, why would you put this blood on the ear, the thumb, and the big toe? Because God said to. Well, that's exactly right. Because God said to. Why did he say to? Does it represent somewhat complete purity? Well, that's one thing. You're kind of, uh, you know, purifying and consecrating the priest from head to toe. You know, it's a complete sort of a thing. Um, I suspect there's more to it than that. Absolutely. What are the priests supposed to do? Hear his voice, do his will, walk in his ways. That's that's part of the, the whole idea of their service. And so you put the blood on the ear, the thumb, and the big toe. They are supposed to hear his voice. They're supposed to do his will. They're supposed to walk in his ways. I guess I realize my time's gotten away from me. You probably want to break. You want to break? All right. Let's break for about five minutes or ten, and then we'll come back and pick this up. I get started talking, I don't realize what the time's done. So. Thank you.